In, on this first Sunday of Advent, we are going to begin, uh, as we heard in the Advent reading, um, we're looking at the second Advent in a great many ways through this season. And so I want to invite you to Romans 13 right now. We're going to read Romans 13, 11 through 14. The Apostle Paul writes this, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Paul has been giving a long in Romans argument uh, specifically for Christ and how he fulfills the law and what that means for particularly, but not exclusively, the Jewish population of Rome. Understanding that but also understanding how that works with the Gentile population as well and what it means to follow Christ together now. But one, one thing he's doing by the end of his letter is to give a lot of really practical thoughts on how this looks to do it together as the church. So in chapter 13, he's giving sort of practical advice and an admonition to be good citizens. You live in a place that doesn't follow Christ, but you need to look like you follow Christ because you do. Do the right thing, is what he's telling them. Everywhere, out in the world, so people know that you follow Jesus. You can see in verse 8 of chapter 13, he says, Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And he's telling them to do that within the body of believers. The people that that you're with love those people and show what it means to follow Christ within that group. But then in verse 10, he looks outward. He says, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So be a good citizen wherever you are, as the people of Christ. Practice that in-house, because if you're not doing it here, you're not going to do it there, and you're supposed to do it in both places, is what Paul is telling us. You better get it right in the house, or you're not going to get it right out there. And the problem that Paul's been flagging all through the letter and kind of comes down, he brings it to some practical moments here, is the problem of the flesh. Different translations might have different things when when he talks about that through the book of Romans, but he talks about the flesh, and that's the sinful nature. That's always at war within us against what God wants and with following Christ. That fights against us loving one another and loving those outside the church. The sinful nature, it works against God's ways, and it also, as it turns out, works against human thriving. So just as if you think of when you were a kid, since all the kids have left pretty much, when you were a kid, or perhaps you still are, and you're having an issue with a sibling or a friend, and mom or dad says, well, just ignore the behavior Just ignore whatever they're doing that's bothering you. And as a kid, that's one of the hardest things to possibly do, isn't it? To ignore it? No, instead, you give into it 
And then it feeds the bad behavior in the other person. Just, just ignore your brother. Just ignore your sister. But they can't. It's hard. They're learning. But let's not be fooled into thinking that when we become adults, at some point we magically just give up all of those sinful inclinations and ways of working into the flesh just because we hit a certain age or period of time in life, right? We can have issues perhaps in a marriage where something goes uh, wrong and needs to be addressed or friendship or at work and you got to choose your timing and how to address those things, right? But sometimes the sinful nature makes us want to not choose the best timing and choose the worst timing. We sometimes will experience moments in life where things just don't work out right. We know we need to cut our losses in whatever's going on with a relationship with somebody else in, in a work situation, for instance. Things aren't going well or at the store, wherever it is. And instead of cutting our losses, we try and dig in to the problem and make things worse. Or somebody offends us. And we don't just let those simple offenses go. We push in. I have a, a, a professor I had years ago. This was in Chicago. He was driving on the interstate, going somewhere. They were driving 70 or whatever it is, miles an hour. And apparently the person behind him got irate because he thought he did something wrong. So this person comes, drives up right next to him, just starts just making all kinds of uh, movements indicating that something happened. And uh, my professor looked at him after this guy just kind of went crazy, and he goes, me? <laughs> to which the guy got even more angry and went like that. But sometimes we choose to react improperly to this. Fred, he, uh, the professor was fine, but the other guy was improperly reacting to this. And the sinful nature, when we get into those situations where we should back off, the sinful nature tells us to lean into our worst instincts. That's what it tells us, because we think we'll get satisfaction at those moments. It tells us, the sinful nature tells us to get revenge, get satisfaction, to get even. The sinful nature tells us to slip in the digging comment to someone else. The sinful nature tells us that when we've walked away from a situation where we kind of feel wronged, that we can tell our friends, you know what, I would have told them if I had my mind, you know, or, or if I had my druthers, or whatever it is. That's what the sinful nature does in us. Until we acknowledge the problem of the sinful nature at work in us, we have a problem then of motivation, of action, and of purpose. Motivation, if the sinful nature is coursing through our veins and that's what we let live there, then we will have moments where we do things that are right, but we didn't do them because they're right. We did them because we wanted to do them and they would benefit us. If the sinful nature is what we allow to work in us as our operative principle in life, then we have a problem of action because we're definitely not going to love our neighbors. We're going to love ourselves pretty well. And we're going to have an issue of purpose. We're definitely not going to love other believers and advance God's kingdom at all. Now, I'll make a clarification here. We, if we follow Jesus Christ... We are at war with the sinful nature for the rest of our lives. Even though the Spirit is working in us, we will have times when we slip, we mess up. Those things happen. Go to God for forgiveness. Paul talks about that. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We'll have those moments. But 
If we let the sinful nature purely flow through us, then both the spirit and the flesh are weak. We've not given ourselves over to Christ. And we're not going to live for God's ways. And we're not going to thrive as humans, actually. Because those two things go together. That's how God designed us. Following Jesus, it turns out, requires some sacrifice on our part as we live not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. It requires death to self. Paul's talked about that all through Romans. We didn't study that uh, in any series, but that's what he's been talking about. He talks about dying to self and coming alive in Christ. That's what it means to put away the things of the flesh and to live as Christ's own. That's what he's talking about here. And if that's who we are, then Paul says, here are the actions you need to take. You need to wake up and you need to clean up. And I'm going to credit the late Warren Rearsby uh, for those two uh, ways of preaching because it was just so good. And he put them in his commentary and I thought, how could you ignore that? Wake up and clean up. Wake up. Let's talk about that first. There was, and by the way, I was delighted that I already had a conversation about monks this morning. And that's, these, these are my guys. Um, I, used, I studied them when I was doing my graduate work, and so I haven't brought them up for a long time, so it's the perfect day to bring them up again. One of the things I've been so fascinated about, about old monks particularly, uh, I studied them in the 300s to the 500s AD, but all throughout monkishness even today. One of the things that monks are on about is compunction. Compunction, it's this really fascinating, beautiful concept and word that we all need in our vocabulary, compunction. I'll give you a simple definition. That is, it's a feeling of guilt and uneasiness of the heart or remorse. That's compunction. I'll give you a couple more examples in a moment. But compunction is the thing that motivates us to take action when the flesh is weak. Because we feel that wrong has been done or that we're living in the flesh. And, and compunction says, get out of it. Wake up. Monks were exceptionally good at this. Let me give you a, a definite... A, a, a little more than the definition from uh, Bruce Waltke and Jim Houston, two commentators on this and many other things. They say compunction leads to the healing and bright sorrow of one's inner personal sinful status, without which Christianity is merely a formal religion. It tells us to wake up. Wake up and be alive in Christ. Acts 2.37 is a biblical example of where we see what compunction looks like. It won't be on the screen. I'll just read it to you. After Peter has preached on the day of Pentecost, it's the people's response where you see compunction. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. There's your compunction. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Wake up. Now, if we go to the monks for a moment, and we won't stay on them for long, I'll have a couple things to say in one quote, and then we'll move on to some scripture again. But the, the monks, monks are so exceptionally good at this, and they're very dire about it, usually. Um, you read a lot of early monks talk about uh, the, the most compunct among them, if that's how you can use it, are the ones who always thought about their death and the judgment that would follow. Those that had that always on their mind we're always thinking about what needed to be cleaned up in their lives. Now, we, we do need to think about that, I think, with regularity. And we're in a culture that diminishes that thought. But maybe a, a more simple and redemptive and light way to think about it. Here's a quote from Abba Jacob, a monk. It says, like a lantern lighting a dark room, the fear of God comes into a man's heart and lightens it 
and teaches him all goodness and the commandments of God. And there you have how compunction works out. That it would teach us what's right, and by the power of the Spirit, we'd learn to live and be empowered to live that way because of what Christ has done for us. Let's go back to the text. We can now that we've kind of this wake up is in our minds here. Romans 13, 11. Paul says, and do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Wake up, Paul's telling us. Has the hour come, though? He says it's really close. Has it come? We're still here. It's been 2,000 years, at least since this writing, since God inspired Paul to write these words. We heard this morning, Matthew 24, Jesus says the hour about that hour or day no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. There have been many religious traditions and groups that have tried to predict the day. They've been wrong and they try and predict it again. Then they're wrong again and they try and predict it again. They're still in existence thinking it's just around the corner. Paul says it's coming. It's imminent. Your salvation is nearer than it was before, he says. It's coming. Do we know the day or the hour? Well, let me tell you, if you're writing, taking notes, here's the day and the hour. I'm just kidding. I don't know it any more than anybody else. We don't know it. Your salvation is nearer now, though, Paul says, which is a true statement no matter how you understand it, because your salvation is nearer now than when we first started this sermon and when we first woke up this morning, isn't it? So we already know that that's true, although that seems simplistic to think that way. What does it mean that your salvation is nearer now, that understanding the present time, the hour has come? Well, one thing we can say is that we should be growing as followers of Jesus Christ no matter the time frame. And if we're not, we're doing it wrong. And furthermore, we could say it this simply. Though we don't know the hour, we do know how we're supposed to act until Christ's return. And that's enough. That's enough for us to know. And that's what Paul is telling us. We do know how to act. So if you skip to verse 13, Paul tells us, here's some reminders of how to act. Verse 13 says, let us, not, or let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Now we could ask, why does Paul cite these specific problems of the flesh? Well, they're real, first of all, both then and now. We haven't grown out of them. Sin is still sin, and it's still the works of the flesh are still working on us, even today. Uh, but they're also representative, so this is not an exhaustive list, as Paul does this many times. You see it in the New Testament. It's a list that points to bigger problems, but here are some that are very pronounced. I'm going to take them two by two and not spend much time on them at all, but I think it's worth actually pointing out a, a couple things here. When he talks about carousing and drunkenness, that's what my translation has. Yours may have something slightly different. They all mean the same thing. That is, and this is my definition put together by multiple sources, carousing are morally repugnant binge parties. I just thought that was an interesting way to state it. That is orgies and the like and anything that just takes you downward. And it relates to sexual immorality, but it's a little bit different. 
But he pairs that with drunkenness. They don't have to go together because that can go with other stuff on the list. But basically, uh, it's not just drinking. It's drunkenness that leads down this path and the other paths because at that point you said, I don't care. Even though that doesn't excuse behavior done against you in those cases, at that point, though, you are saying, I'm opening myself up to a whole lot of things that I wouldn't normally open myself up to, and I don't care. Paul says, don't do that. That's not wise. That's not how we're supposed to behave. That's not how people who live in the light behave. Secondly, Paul cites sexual immorality and debauchery. That sexual immorality word, we see that in compound fashion in other places in the New Testament, simply uh, translated as bedding someone, is what it is, B-E-D-D, bedding someone. That is to say what Paul is saying here is, and it's built into the word, the marriage bed is what's in view there, husband, wife, and anything outside of that ought not be done. That's what the word means. That's built into the word. Paul says don't do that. Don't do anything except respect and honor the marriage bed as it's intended when it comes to sexuality. Anything outside of that is out of bounds. Don't do that. You will not thrive as humans if you do that. And then debauchery. This is sort of like carousing's cousin, I would say. Um, It's doing whatever you want in spite of morality and the consequences. And so you look at all these, and again, these are representative. You see a progression here. One leads to the other, and the results are all negative. That's what Paul is saying. He's giving specific examples, so we ought to pay attention to those. But all of these are specific examples of things that we can do that are living in the dark, that are the opposite of God's intent for his world, and God, the opposite of God's intent for the thriving of humans that he created in his image and redeemed through his son. The third set on the list are dissensions and jealousy. And here you have more relational terms in a different sense used here. Uh, A way we could, I suppose, translate this is what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas when it comes to dissensions and jealousy. These are problems that stem whenever we don't do what God wants us to do when it comes to relationships with other people. Discord comes in. Desire for what's not ours comes into play as we live into the flesh in this way. Uh, One way to say it is the morning after a sorority party gone wrong is just as problematic as a church meeting where people don't love one another. Dissension and jealousy are against God's intent every single time. When we do what we want versus doing what God wants, which is all that this list is showing us, we should expect negative results. We should expect ungodly results. Fighting, arguing, desiring what others have that's not ours to take. We should expect that if this is how we live, Paul says, as living in the dark, not in the light. Paul says your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. That is, this stuff, put it away. Put anything like it away. Put anything like that dissension and jealousy, especially within the body of Christ where we're supposed to love one another. Put that away, too. Put it to death. Because we don't know the hour of Christ's return, but we do know how we're supposed to act until then. Let's go to verse 14. Paul says, rather than all that other stuff, living in the dark, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires 
of the flesh. Clothing yourself with Christ simply means becoming like Christ. That's all it is. It's just a fancy way of saying that. And as we consider how we operate, how we think like Christ, how we act like Christ, if we know him, consider this question. Would I act differently if I knew I had only 12 months to live rather than a normal lifespan? And I can almost guarantee for all of us, myself included, if we had less time, we would change our behavior. That's not what the text, the text tells us we should change our behavior no matter what the time frame is. So that we live as Christ's, clothed as his disciples. Not changing because we know the new time frame. And I include myself in that. I, as I think about that, I think about what would I change? We've had to think about that kind of recently about some things. But what is my answer to a question like that? If I had 12 months versus a normal lifespan, what does it indicate about my virtue, my character, and my priorities? Because that tells me an area of discipleship of where I need to change and reorient some things to look more like Christ. We could start, if you're, if you're going to reorient and clothe yourselves with Christ and you, you feel like you're far away, and all of us are to some degree, right? We can live into the flesh in different ways, unfortunately, even when we follow Jesus. I'm going to suggest that if we're not sure that we have the heart of Christ, we need to start with the behavior first. Because quite honestly, we can, we can often have that spirit that's willing, but the flesh that's weak, and sometimes we need to change the flesh to help tap in to what's, what the Spirit needs to do. What needs to change in your behavior to look more like Christ? I would say, I had written here when I first came up with this sermon, maybe we need to commit to using our time differently. I would just take out the maybe if I were rewriting this now, because I am rewriting it right now, and just say our time needs to change and the use of our time. That's the thing that usually gets almost all of us. Our time is put into things all too often that make us less like Christ rather than more like Christ. For some of us, our watching habits, what we watch on the big and the small screen, do not make us more like Christ. And we're not discerning enough customers about that. For some of us, our devotional habits need a little touching up in some cases, need to be added to the schedule entirely in other cases to actually read God's word and let it wash over us with regularity. For some of us, we actually need to change the people that we talk to on a regular basis because we spend our time entirely with too many people who pull us down in conversation and we enter into that and we bring it home with us rather than those who bring us up towards Christ. That doesn't mean cut off all friendships. That means consider how we spend our time and how we even talk within those relationships. For some of us, this one's going to seem lofty. You ought to read a book on theology because some of us stopped learning theology in Sunday school. We need to pick it up again. Watch a video on YouTube. That's fine too. Books are better though. For some of us, when Paul gets to that, that last bit of dissension and jealousy 
that lives within us. And we need to pray for someone because we have that against someone. And instead of praying about them, we're thinking other things. We need to use our time differently and change our behavior if we're going to look more like Christ. Now, that's not going to do it all, but that's an important step in getting there because your habits indicate if there's something wrong with your heart quite often. The deeper question is, what needs to change in my heart to become more like Christ? And that's a harder one to answer all too often. And sometimes the behavior can help us get there and address that. Because all those, all those changes may need to be made in our behavior, but they'll simply become behavior changes if we don't have the heart of Christ within us. We'll simply be better at masking the ways of the flesh if we don't have Christ in us. There was a, a friend of mine was telling me years ago, this is in the decades ago now because it was that much cheaper uh there was a deal in the small town he grew up in of uh, 200 bucks get your car painted they'd mask it off for you but they wouldn't take care of any of the rust so you had to take care of all the rust on your own and then they'd spray it down whatever color you want so you can tell it's a long time ago if it's 200 bucks um and in that case if you don't take care of the rust you know what's going to happen you spray it down and you're going to see that rust again real soon through that paint It's just going to chip off what was put on there, like a veneer. If we simply change the behavior without having the heart of Christ in us, we're going to see the works of the flesh pop out immediately and quickly. The simple question we can ask underneath all of us is, do my actions and attitudes please God? This is a discipleship question. Do my actions and attitudes actually please God? And if they please God, and I have the heart of Christ, you know what's going to happen? They're going to please me. Because I was designed to worship God and to love him. Though we don't know the hour, we know how to act until Christ's return. Let us change our behavior. Let us make sure we have the attitude of Christ within us and clothe ourselves with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it is hard sometimes to address the places where we have fallen short and where we don't look like your son, Jesus. For some of us this morning, we don't look at all like your son, Jesus. We haven't said yes to him. And so this morning, Lord, may your spirit work. And if you're sitting in the room and you haven't said yes to Jesus, if you're online and you haven't said yes to Jesus, say yes to him this morning. Call him your Lord. Call him your Savior. Ask for forgiveness and seek the spirit to make you into a new creation. For some of us, Lord, we have behaviors that point to parts of our heart and life that we haven't allowed for the fullness of your redemption to reach. We've shielded them for whatever reason. We've given in to the works of the flesh because we feel like that is the more satisfying option than calling you our God in those areas. Lord, for those areas, we give them over to you today for both a behavior and a heart change that the works of the flesh would be a thing of the past in our lives and the work of your spirit would be our only future. We pray this, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus, who died for us and for your church, that we would love one another and love our neighbor as ourself and reveal your kingdom in the process of doing just that. pray this all in your name. Amen.